Hello, thanks for tuning in. Today we have Gavin Ashenden as our guest. Gavin is a former Anglican bishop and a former chaplain to Her Majesty the Queen. Nowadays, he's a Catholic. He's the associate editor of the Catholic Herald, and he's also the host of the Merely Catholic podcast. Gavin, thanks so much for coming on as a guest. I really appreciate it. Do you mind introducing yourself and kind of stating a little bit about your background? So my name is Gavin Ashenden. I started training as a lawyer when I was a young man. My family were all lawyers. I had an evangelical conversion and became an Anglican priest for about 40 years. I did 10 years in parish ministry and then 25 years in uh, as an academic I did a few other things in the meanwhile. I became a radio presenter on the BBC for a faith and ethics program, which was went very well for a while. And um, at some point, I was made a chaplain to the Queen for 10 years, which gave me some interesting responsibilities and a personal profile. One of the most important things, I think, there are two elements in forming where I've ended up. The first is that in the 1980s, I smuggled Bibles into Russia. And I did that because I read a lot of Solzhenitsyn in the same way that Jordan Peterson has. And I'd become convinced that it was enormously important that we do what we could to help cancelled Christians who faced really serious penalties in the Soviet Union. As it happened, I got arrested twice, once in Moscow, once in Prague. And I had a fairly unpleasant time at the hands of my, my state interrogators. And that gave me a very vivid sense of the danger of totalitarian leftism. I mean, I'd read about it, but I'd also experienced it by talking to the fellow Christians and and, and, uh, experiencing the state in full hue and cry. And that, along with the fact that I worked at a really radical left-wing university, probably the most radical. And so all the things we're experiencing now, I could see coming from about 2008 onwards. It was almost a, a mystical, I could almost taste them. I remember there was actually a day when I woke up and I can taste the Soviet Union, I said to myself. This is a very weird thing because Fukuyama had just written a book saying the end of history. The wall had fallen and everyone was imagined it was it was Disney-like happy ever after. And the, the thought that I could somehow feel, you know, almost like a, a regurgitation after a bad meal. It was a very strange experience. I, I, I would probably use the word mystical or unconscious, depending on which which category one's talking about. I looked and began to acquaint myself with a Frankfurt school. And then I realized that my instincts were not wrong and that actually there was a there was a very powerful left-wing movement, which we've called cultural Marxism. And for a while, for 10 years, the left said, this is a right-wing conspiracy. It doesn't exist. But of course, we know it does now. We also know that it's as threatening as we said it would be. So the combination of of my experience of the Soviet Union, my my experience at a radical university, my reading of different factors that were going to be at work undermining Western society and the end of Christendom, is partly what made me want to speak out and resist it. (laughs) So I found myself doing this really quite reluctantly. And indeed, I think there are probably... There are, at least in, in, in Europe, it's almost as if there are three figures struggling together, um, Marx, Jesus, and Mohammed, and their followers. And what's happening is that Marx has very badly wounded Jesus. Uh, Mohammed is sitting quietly in the corner, and Marx thinks 
that he can deal with Muhammad in just the same way as he dealt with Jesus. And he's got a, a great surprise coming because Islam is a very different thing from Christianity. It's a hybrid between religion and politics, and it's very politically sophisticated. So the forces of the left, when they come to take on Islam, are in for a huge shock. I saw, for example, a video the other day of a, of a white working class man talking about the pecking order in prisons. And he said, the Muslims are running all the prisons, all the old gang pecking orders are gone because the Muslims stick together in a very profound solidarity and they simply run the prisons. And if you want to survive in prison, you become a Muslim. And I think this is a microcosm. It's a, it's a brutal, simplistic microcosm of what's going to happen in the rest of society. We've experienced this very, this very aggressive and focused attack from the left on the vestiges of Christendom. And in 10 years' time or so, this dominating, totalitarian, aspiring Western culture will encounter Islam. And then I think Islam will win. But that's, you know, that's looking forward to 230, 240, 250. No, I agree with you on on Islam and, and, and winning. Uh, I think one of the really big strengths of, if, of Muslims is the fact that if, if your father's a Muslim, you're considered a Muslim. So it's kind of interwoven in your in your cultural fabric. And then here in the West with America, almost always you have to you have to go through confirmation. You have to kind of accept Christ at a certain age. And and if you know, it's also your awkward teenage years, right? So it's kind of makes sense to not really understand what's going on. And I think that that really hurts our numbers. Obviously, you know, with uh, with Jewish individuals too, if, if their parents are Jewish, they're considered Jewish. So I think that's one of the kind of loopholes that hurts Christianity. Well, it's a great strength and a weakness in Christianity at the same time. It's a great strength because it requires personal affiliation, a commitment, a level of integrity. It's a response that Jesus evokes on behalf of, of the Holy Trinity to us saying, you've got free will and you need to surrender. And let's leave Judaism in brackets for the moment, but, but Islam is corporatist, it's plural, it's communal. As you say, you're born a Muslim. And worse than that, if you try and leave, then you're under serious you're, you're under serious threat. There is a kind of solidity within Islam that is that is a given and produces this corporate solidarity in a way that, that Christianity does, because it also involves a degree of personal transformation and an experience of the living God that Islam doesn't have. But it is weakest, it's much weaker, because it doesn't have the clarity of purpose and the communal identification that Islam has. And unfortunately, and in the West, at the moment, Christianity is weak, at its weakest. Right. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. You were chaplain to Her Majesty the Queen, and then you left, I guess you stepped down from that position, and then you left the Church of England for Catholicism. Yes, I didn't intend to do any of these things, but I was quite well informed about Islam, partly because I'd worked with some Islamic colleagues. I ran an interfaith team, and I had some Islamic colleagues, and it was it was actually from my Islamic colleagues that I... I realized I was told the politically unacceptable truth, which is perfectly obvious if you understand the history of Islam, that Islam had designs on Europe and the UK. There was a critical moment, it would take a long time to explain, when, when my colleague said, I'm, I don't have to stay to the end of this meeting, my work is done. Great Britain will be an Islamic republic in the time of my grandchildren. And I mean, I was just astonished he would say it, and it was even possible. It turns out that by 2050, over 50% of UK citizens will be Muslim. And so there's no doubt at all, the enormous demographic shifts in Europe because of immigration will produce this. 
And I began to talk about what the implications of that were, but also about the complexities of the Quran, because the Quran is divided into two parts. There's the Mecca and the Medina part. The Mecca part of the Quran contains all, all the nice verses that liberals use and say, look how similar to Judaism and Christianity Muhammad's revelation is. It's very well-meaning. It's very generous. It deals with the people of the book. Uh, and it's true for the, for the Mecca stage of his life. All the, the, the brutal and ruthless texts come from the Medina stage of his life, when he was having a very bad time and was engaged in serious conquest. Moving, if you like, from the experimental, generous part of his experience of these revelations to the warlord part. And the problem that we have is that in Islamic interpretation, whatever comes near the, near the end of the Quran takes precedence over it. So if ever you have a conversation between, if you like, a liberal Muslim and a conservative Muslim, theologically the conservative Muslim always wins. The violent passages trump the generous passages. And this is, this is still almost unknown amongst the general population and even amongst Christian theologians. And the liberal press understands it. The way we know it understands it is it tries to distinguish between Muslims and Islamism. Well, Islamism is simply the name it's given conventional Orthodox Islam when it moves into its violent stage. But it's still Islam. It's still Muslims. And all the attempts to give it another name by the liberal press in order to try and make a, a gap between it and the worldwide Muslim community are a piece of chicanery. So the problem that we have is that Islam is determined on, I mean, quite rightly determined, as Christianity is, on spreading itself as, as much as it can. And it has three ways of doing it. It has, it has immigration, evangelism, and, and jihad. And it will use whatever is most appropriate. And we should, we should pay it the utmost respect. We should take it seriously and allow itself to tell us what it's doing. But this was all a means of explaining that, that when I was asked questions by the press, I answered truthfully, and this caused a great deal of trouble. And there came a point when the uh, when the, the palace authorities said, look, you need to put some distance between you and the queen, because otherwise she's going to be associated with your views. So basically, after 10 years, we'd like you to consider either, either shutting up and being quiet, or else find some other solution, which is clearly, clearly to resign. Well, I was not going to answer questions that are put to me in the public space that I was competent to answer. And so I resigned. And then that propelled me into a wider public platform, paradoxically. And then I'd also been asking questions about sexuality and gender. And looking back on it now, we can see that feminism was a very complex ideology, producing first, second, and third wave feminism. Third wave feminism has produced this postmodern model that reality is in your imagination and not in biology. It's produced this, this appalling phenomenon of gender dysphoria becoming a, a, a public cultural movement amongst wounded teenagers. And it had seemed to me already 15 years ago that feminism had it in its DNA to do this. It wasn't just the kind, benign movement of equal restitution that it set itself out to be. If men can do this, why can't women? If men have this, why shouldn't women? Which was the simplistic way that the whole movement was put to us. And it seemed to me that the balance between the sexes, particularly as you look at Christian theology, is far more complex than that. And that if we pursued this egalitarian agenda, there'd be enormous acts of social, political, and psychological displacement. And, and indeed, there have been. So I was 
I was not in favour of the church capitulating to this secularised power play that feminism produced. And it was very interesting that in all the discussions from the mid-1970s onwards about the ordination of women to the priesthood in the episcopate, all the arguments in favour were political. There were no theological ones at all. The only theological one was, was a misreading of Galatians 3. And that made me think, well, let's do some theology. But the theological, the theological answers were much more hesitant about this. And so I thought that if the Church of England claimed to be part of the Catholic Church, as it mistakenly did, it didn't have the capacity to make these enormous decisions and basically declare 2,000 years of church history wrong. So when it consecrated women to the episcopate, that did two things. It, it changed the DNA of the church. It made it Protestant instead of Catholic. And at that point, I, I said, not in my name, I have to resign. So I, I did. And then inevitably, and not surprisingly, perhaps, that set me on a, on a trajectory of becoming Catholic myself. To pivot to Church of England, Church of England seems like they're pretty progressive and they've got a political agenda. Is, is that fair to say? Yes, I think so. I think one of the reasons is that if you're a state church, then you have to build a bridge between Christianity and the modern culture. And it's a truism to say that whenever the, whenever the church has occupied a central place in the state, one of two things happens. Either the church converts the state to Christianity, which it's done in some extraordinary and wonderful ways as the history of Europe, or else the state converts the church to whatever its sub-Christian agenda is. And, and really, it's been very clear over the last 30 years that the Church of England was being converted to the secular mindset that the state brought to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and increasingly, as as more orthodox Christian voices in the Church of England said, but but this is going to destroy us. It will, you know, these are not Christian ideas. They're incompatible with the faith. The continued politicization of the church reached such an intense pitch that orthodox voices were forced out. And so what we have now is, uh, well, you, you can describe it as uh, therapeutic monistic deism or it's wokeism with, a, with an icing of faith on top, but it's not Christianity. The Church of England now is is tiny, it's immensely small. So although it's supporting its morale by talking about its membership in terms of those who are baptised, the reality is that it only has something like about 400,000 people who go across the doors in the year, and 400,000 people in a population of about 70 million. It's tiny, and, yeah, and it's, it's not growing. No, it's very tiny, very tiny. The secularism that, that C of E embraces, King Charles III, right? He's the head of, of the Church of England, and he's pretty progressive as well. And what I wanted to ask on that is, I don't see, I don't see Charles kind of embracing a return to traditionalism at all. I, I think Charles is uh, probably focused on retaining popularity, becoming more popular, seeming as relevant as he can. He does that with environmentalism, I think, to a great degree. But with him being the head of the Church of England, I think there's almost no way that there'll be any sort of return to traditionalism. I think it would probably, I think it'll probably become more secular and more progressive. You think that's fair to say? I'm sure you're right, sadly. And I think the reason for it is that is that Charles is more of a Jungian than he's a Christian. So as with all Jungians, he's very sympathetic to Christianity. Carl Gustav Jung thought that Christianity, and in particular Catholicism, was a very profound way of 
of of being a human. But but he did it because he thought religion had a very important role to play in building a bridge between consciousness and unconsciousness, not because he believed in the Holy Trinity and in our Lord Jesus Christ. And as it happens, Charles had a very famous Jungian writer and philosopher called Lawrence van der Post, who was influential in his childhood and his youth. And like so many of us, I went through, I went through, I would say, a 15-year period of devotion to Jung myself. It was a mistake. I I recognize what it looks like intellectually and psychologically. And it's perfectly clear to me that Charles is in the place that I was. He's a devotee of Jung and Jungian ideas and Jung's attitude to the usefulness of faith in general. And so he's made all these remarks about saying he wants to be defender of faith. And as a good Jungian, that would be a very responsible thing to do. But again, it's not Christianity. Christianity is not compatible with Islam. It's not compatible with Hinduism and with any of the other faiths. It makes it has a very different view of who God is and a different kind of anthropology. And so uh, to say that he thinks he can somehow draw all the expressions of faith under his monarchical umbrella is a sub-Christian and even an anti-Christian idea. A Christian would not and could not do that. I mean, a Christian might say, I'm going to create a Christian atmosphere in which we will exercise tolerance and hospitality towards you, but it's going to be a Christian structure, and it'll be a hospitable Christian structure. But that's not what Charles is saying at all. And so the problem is he's chosen the sub-Christian, or even, I'm afraid, I would say the anti-Christian philosophical agenda And what he doesn't realize is that the monarchy is essentially a Christian construct. It's a Christian concept. In my podcast for the Catholic Herald, Merely Catholic, this week I talked to um, Edward von Habsburg, the the family that provided the Holy Roman Emperors and Empire. And he's written a a very good new, new book on the Habsburg family. And Edward's extremely clear that the one thing that the Christian monarchy can offer is an antidote to all the forces that are undermining Christian values. And that that actually is one of the virtues of Christian monarchy. It's a real tragedy that since we have a Christian monarchy in our country, instead of using it to rediscover the aquifers of faith and civilization and free speech and mutuality, it's being used instead to promote DIE, diversity, inclusion, and equity. And the problem is, when the, when the monarchy gets into trouble, which it surely will, it even got into trouble when Diana died under Queen Elizabeth, it's not going to be the DIE people who are going to run and rally around to support the monarchy. It would only be the Christians. But if Charles is disassociating himself for the Christians, then there'll be nobody there to support him when the monarchy gets into trouble. And I'm afraid, I fear, that's when the monarchy will collapse. I think it was Macmillan, one of our prime ministers, who was asked what he feared most as a politician. And he said, events, dear boy, events. Well, you know, events are those things that erupt out of nowhere. No one can see coming. And if I was King Charles III, I, I would fear events. There'll be some level of, some degree of turbulence which will threaten the monarchy. And all the things that would have defended it won't be available to him because he's disassociated himself from them. Yeah, no, no. I mean, those are those are great points. I, I completely follow and agree. 
Did you in, in, in Habsburg kind of come up with any solutions, discuss ways forward, or is this is this just too Habsburg far did? Yeah, no, no, Habsburg did. I was really surprised because I've I've become um fatalistic is the wrong word. I'm a Christian, I don't believe in fate. But on the other hand, if you repudiate God, you, you end up in a very bad place. And it seems to me that Europe and now America to some extent are in are busy repudiating God and all the goodness that comes from a sanctified view of humanity. There isn't any other religion or philosophy that sees humanity as sacred. To some extent, all the other religions and philosophers have a utilitarian attitude to humankind. Islam does too. I mean, to be to be a Muslim, you have to belong. You have to, you know, you have to submit both to Muhammad, to the Quran, to the Islamic State. Look at Iran if you want an idea of being a or Saudi Arabia if you want to know what being a good Muslim looks like. It doesn't involve freedom of speech. Doesn't involve freedom of conscience. If you want those things, you have to have a Christian culture where the human being is sacrosanct because God made him, loved him, and gave his life for him. And what you do to your neighbor, you do to some extent to God. That's unique to Christianity, and it's the and it's the the, the beautiful idea upon which the best parts of our civilization are founded. So if you dispense with that, I think the future is bleak. Edward von Habsburg said, actually, he thinks that the renewal of our culture will take place through Catholic family life. And that the that Catholic family life is so generative, it's it's so fruitful, it's so powerful. It embodies so much of what people really want in their hearts that it will attract people to both to the Catholic Church and to Christ and to a Christian philosophical outlook. He said, wherever the Catholic, wherever Catholic families flourish, there is a rejuvenation of relationships and society. Firstly, at a microcosm. But if you expand the microcosm, it becomes a macrocosm. And I thought, I thought that's that's really very courageous. And it's certainly potentially true. Yeah, no, for sure. I haven't thought of it that way, though. That's very insightful. What about the Orthodox Church at this point? Coming back in in Russia and what have you, you know, this might be a good point to end on, but is orthodoxy going to continue to, to influence modern Christianity? I think with any movement, you have to ask when you're assessing it, what are the virtues and what are the vices? And, and how do the virtues and vices interplay with whatever the present circumstances are? Because there are some contexts in which a, a, a vice can be a virtue to some extent, and a virtue might be problematic. I think at the moment, orthodoxy has a great virtue. It goes backwards instead of forwards. So at the moment, our society is disintegrating because of the view of progress that the secularists and the utopians have. The orthodox don't have a view of progress. They have a kind of retrograde view. What you want to do is to get back to the apostles as best you can, to the primitive and original church, to the apostles. That's kind of with uh, with uh, orthodoxy. I've, I've been hearing... Uh, retraditionalization or, or stuff along those lines, right? The kind of, kind of in finance, this is completely unrelated, but the term uh, reversion to the mean, right? We use that all the time. So in, uh, I guess with, with orthodoxy and then other forms of Christianity, orthodoxy is really pushing this kind of reversion back to tradition, retradition. And I think that's a that's a very powerful virtue in our present circumstances, where progressivism is is so deeply flawed and will lead to totalitarian utopianism. And in that sense, orthodoxy says, "Hey, we, we will match you in that. We will go we will go back as energetically as you go pseudo forward." 
Mm -hmm. going back is stronger than your pseudo forward. It's more realistic. We have something very powerful to go back to. And uh, so I think that's very worthwhile. The the problem with orthodoxy is it's nationalism. It's, um, again, it's one of its strengths that's become a weakness. Its strength is it gets embodied in a national culture. The weakness is if, if the national cultures turn against each other, then it becomes fractious and schismatic. And so part of the problem with the Orthodox is they, they lack the oversight of the Western Pope, the Bishop of Rome. So even though Pope Francis is causing the Catholic Church community a great deal of trauma at the moment with his studied ambiguity, just what you don't need at a time of flux, nonetheless, the idea of the papacy is one of the most powerful ideas that available to us and particularly valuable at the moment if we could only have a pope like John Paul II who would exercise it well. So it's just possible that the the next pope will be another John Paul II and they will be cooking on gas. But meanwhile, orthodoxy is a a wonderful and very powerful ally to the Western Christianity. And indeed, I, I was very attracted to becoming orthodox. But as I prayed and asked God what he wanted me to do, it seemed to me that that orthodoxy was a was an indulgence rather than um, the main game in town. The main game in town in the West is the Catholic Church. And, and that's also where the real, the real fight is taking place with progressivism. The Catholic Church is just as badly affected by progressive ideas as any other community, but it has to be won there. If it's won mm-hmm. there, then we can win back the world. If it's lost there, we'll be in a terrible state. But I take comfort in the promise of Jesus that um, the gates of hell will not prevail against the Petrine inheritance. Well, Gavin, let's end on that. That was brilliant. I appreciate you coming on. Thanks so much. Chad, it's great to talk to you. Thank you for having me.